The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. A few weeks ago when I began speaking on the crucifixion of Christ, I told you that that the subject is one of the hardest that I've had to deal with, that I actually even dreaded the time that we would come to this point that we were dealing with this last part of Matthew and speaking of the crucifixion. And I have to just honestly say again that this is one of the most physically exhausting studies that I've ever done. Uh, It's easy to, maybe in some ways, to preach on the cross if you're going to do one sermon on it and kind of wrap everything up into just one one time that you're going to talk about or to maybe two times. But the, to study the scriptures and to have to look at it comprehensively and do it verse by verse, uh, you're, you're stretching it out over such a long time that, that the, the subject matter of the crucifixion is just really a physically exhausting thing to do. And I feel that, and I don't know if it comes across in the messages whether you get tired of what you're hearing and it seems laborious because uh, we're, we're taking it slowly. But I don't know of any other way to approach the subject but to see just what does the Scripture have to say about it and what does all of this mean and what are the implications of everything that's told to us here. So we are taking it a bit slowly and there are going to be several more messages that will deal with the cross and uh, all of the events that, that happened there. So we're looking here in Matthew chapter 27 and we're continuing to talk about the crucifixion and the subject again today is the bruising of the woman's seed. And that's a reference to the Bible's first promise that God would make a sacrifice to redeem man from his sins. And that promise, of course, is found in Genesis 3.15 and what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium or that is the first preaching of the gospel And that's when God spoke to the serpent, that deceiver who is Satan, the adversary of God's people, the slander against God and his people. And God said to the serpent that I will put enmity between you, that is hostility he means, I'll put hostility between you and the woman's seed forever, that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And the seed of the woman that... God was talking about is his own son, Jesus Christ, the one who was born of the virgin. And his death on the cross is is that bruising. It wasn't his final defeat. It wasn't the complete casting down of the Savior, not his destruction, but it was a bruising of him. Whereas what happens to the serpent is the total destruction. That when Christ died and when he arose again from the grave, he sealed the death of sin, of, of death itself, of evil, and of the devil forever. That's what Jesus did at the cross and his resurrection. Now, if you look at our scriptures at Matthew 27, beginning at verse number 33, this is where we actually come to the, the cross. We've talked about preliminaries and those things, but we actually come to the cross in this portion of scripture. And I'll just leave you seated there for for today, and uh, you can just listen as we read. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, And upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. 
If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now, two weeks ago, I did speak about the preliminaries to the cross, and we talked about all the awful sufferings and the beatings that took place just prior to the crucifixion. And those beatings and the mocking that was done by the Roman soldiers, that was part of the bruising that is spoken of back in Genesis 3.15. The fake trial that Jesus was put through and then the rejection of the people of Jesus and, and that's all part of the bruising. The release of Barabbas and choosing him instead of Jesus, that was part of the bruising. The humiliation of, of all the things that he went through are just the marked personification of the terrible wickedness of the human heart. And understanding the character of Jesus, the, there was so much that was done against sound reason that we can only conclude just this, that the devil is so powerful, Satan is so powerful that he's able to twist the truth, he's able to bend people's minds to the place that they defy their own best interest and they destroy themselves. And that's exactly what Satan caused Adam to do in the Garden of Eden. There's nothing in the crucifixion that actually makes any sense to us at all, not to the rational mind, unless we believe the Scriptures when they say that there is this cosmic battle that's going on above our heads where Satan and God are fighting this out, a constant spiritual battle that's being waged. And it was first engaged, the first draw, the first, the first stroke that was made in that battle is the Proto-Evangelium that we find there in Genesis 3.15. And so as we go through the, 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 the story of the cross, the tension keeps building and, and the bruising continues until we come to the crucifixion itself where it culminates in the darkness of judgment. And then finally, in that darkness, Jesus cried out, It is finished! And he gave up his life. Well, in this section of Scripture, we're exploring some of the acts of that bruising. Now, first we looked at Golgotha and Gaul that we find there in verse number 33, that it says they brought Jesus to the place of the crucifixion, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Latin, that is Calvary. In Greek, it's Cranion. In English, it is the skull. And that's a very fitting name because a skull speaks of death. Uh, still today, a skull and crossbones indicates death. They put a skull and crossbones on a bottle of poison because the contents mean it contains death. And so Golgotha was just that. It was a place of death, and it was a well-known place of death because the worst kinds of deaths were done there. People were crucified in this place. Well, Golgotha was outside of Jerusalem's walls, but it was visible to the city. Probably it sat up on a high spot. Gordon's Calvary, the picture that I showed you last week, a rocky hill, that's most likely the place although it is disputed by some in favor of a depression near the wall of the fortress of Antonio. But it's quite remarkable that if you go to Jerusalem today, visitors there today, look at Gordon's Calvary, and you can very well imagine that that would have been the place that Jesus was crucified. It is visible to the city. Uh, you can see it from the Temple Mount. It's very close to the Damascus Gate, which is one of the... Uh, more popular places to go into the city of Jerusalem. It lies near to an ancient crossroads, which made it perfect for the Romans because they wanted people to see crucifixions. And that whole hill, when you look at it, 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 it looks like a, it's a huge rock with depressions in it that look like eye sockets, so it does very much look like a skull. And then in the scriptures there, there's the mention of Gaul. Mark says that it was myrrh. Uh, the Gaul was a Vinegar mixed with gall was a sour wine or mixed with myrrh, and the myrrh acts as a, sedat a sedative that would dull pain. But we need not think of that myrrh as an act of compassion by the Romans because they weren't interested in compassion. The myrrh was allowed because that would help to calm a prisoner down who violently resisted having his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. But Jesus was not going to resist. So he didn't need any sedatives. So when he tasted that and he understood what was in it, he refused to drink it. 
And all of this is taking place. All of this has to do with him being bruised. He was going to take as much physical pain as possible. He was not going to dull any of his pain. So we never see him fighting back, not in the arrest, not in his trial, not in the scourging, not in the slapping, not in having the crown of thorns that's pressed into his head. Jesus was not going to fight back. And so when they laid him down on the cross, he he never pulled his hands away in resistance. He never kicked his feet so they couldn't nail them. But he stretched out his arms, he stretched out his legs, and he received the nails into his hands and his feet like a badge, a badge of love for those he was willing to die for. And so we see that is the seed of the woman that is bruised. Literally, he was beaten black and blue, covered with blood and sweat, bruised from head to to toe, physically, mentally, spiritually. He was completely wrung out from this experience of being at the cross. And we keep looking at that and we talk about it and we wonder, well, is that enough? Could they do enough to him by just nailing him to the cross? Well, evidently not, because they wanted even more. We looked at this last week as well, and that was the symbolism of shame. They could do worse to him because they wanted to remove the last morsel of his dignity. If there was anything that was left in him, they wanted to squeeze it all out. And so they removed even the dignity of his decency. They stripped him naked, they gambled over his clothes, and they took his clothes away, and they left him there to hang on the cross, unable to cover his shame. And that was about the worst that you could do. I mean, to a Jewish male, that's one of the worst things. To uncover a man's nakedness in public, that was just utterly shameful, almost too much to bear. You may remember a story about this in the Old Testament when uh, what what someone did to David's men. David uh, sent some of his men to comfort the king of Ammon when his father died. That king's name was Hanan, and Hanan thought that David's men were spies. And so he wanted to humiliate them, uh, humiliate them. And so what he did was he cut off their beards and then he cut their clothes down to their buttocks and he sent them, sent them back. And that was a terrible, shameful thing. And Hanan knew that to the Jewish people that was a very shameful thing. And so David, in his compassion, would, uh, told his men not to come back right away. Let your beards grow, he said, and don't come back, of course, until you're fully clothed. Because nakedness was shameful. And I tried to bring that out to you last week, how our society has so much nakedness in it. And the further that we get away from God, the less clothes that we put on. And it it just keeps, keeps getting worse all the time. The further that we get away from God, the more people take their clothes off. That just seems to be a thing that people do. And it takes us right back to the very problem that we had in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. That Adam was naked, and the thing he wanted to do when God showed him was naked was clothe himself. And so we wonder why it is that Christian people today, they come to know the Lord, and why don't they want to clothe themselves? Why don't they want to put on the right kind of clothes? Well, this was terrible humiliation to Jesus. He died for nakedness, to put away the sin of nakedness. And perhaps we just don't really fully appreciate what the Apostle Paul said when he said he humbled himself. There is so much in that word humbled. He humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross. Well, nakedness, that's another very bad part of the bruising. Well, I want to move on a little bit further this morning and take you to another part of this scripture. And uh, I want to look at the, the third area here that we see, and that is the striking superscription that was put over the cross of Jesus. Verse number 36, and sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now the sign that they put at the, at the top of the cross was striking. And it was quite unusual because this really stood out as a truly memorable saying. This is beyond what they would normally put on crosses. And you'll notice here that it says, this was his accusation. Well, that was a common thing. It was common to put the charges of a criminal on a placard and they would put that over top of the cross and people would know the crime that that person committed. And so if you wanted to know uh, what kinds of things are capital offenses, 
What you could do, you could walk down the row of crosses and you could look at the placards above those crosses and there the crimes would be listed and you would know that if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. That's a common thing to put the accusations there. For example, those thieves that were crucified with Jesus, they would have had a sign over them that said, thieves or robbers. And if they had been men who were complicit with Barabbas and his crimes, it might also have said murderer. It might have said treason on top of that placard. But when people came, when they came to Jesus' cross, there was no charge there of murder. There's nothing there that says robbery. There is no treason. There's no kidnapping. There's no perversion of any kind. And that's because no charges were ever brought against him. What was Pilate going to say on that placard? This man is innocent? Well, Pilate's not going to say that. That indicts him more than it does Jesus. The Jews said, well, the charge ought to be blasphemy. But Pilate was never going to acknowledge that the Jews' God meant anything to him. And so instead, he puts up this very unusual, very striking accusation that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And that speaks nothing at all about a crime. The other gospel writers give us the full statement. There's actually none of them that puts all of it together in one place. But we read all the gospel accounts, and we come out with this, that the sign over the top said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Well, Matthew left out Nazareth, and he did that to shorten it, to emphasize what he wanted to get across in his gospel account. His is the gospel of the king. Is that not right? And so he's emphasizing Jesus is the king. And when Pilate put that accusation or wrote that on that placard over the cross, he did that to anger them, just to tick the Jews off. And he was mocking Jesus, of course, but just as much he was mocking those Jews. And what he was saying to them was that, you crazy people, you bunch of lunatics, you deserve nothing better than, than, a, than another lunatic from this hellhole town that's called Nazareth. That's the kind of king that you deserve. And no doubt, Pilate allowed him to be mutilated even beyond what was necessary in order to drive this point home deeper that he was disgusted with these people. Now, Pilate was a real anti-Semite. I mean, he treated the Jews the way that God predicted that they would be treated. He wanted to humiliate Jesus, but in the process, the cross became the humiliation of the Jews as well because Pilate was mocking them as well as he was Jesus. Oh, the Jews protested the saying. They caught the drift of what Pilate was trying to do. And so they wanted him to alter the accusation. They wanted him to change it to read, he said that he was the king of the Jews. This is what John records in the 19th chapter. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title was read, was, uh, then, uh, this title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So Pilate refused to make any adjustments. I mean, he'd already given in too much to them. He'd already allowed them to crucify an innocent man. And Pilate was backed into a corner by them, so he wasn't about to do anything for them. And so he just continued to mock them. And then notice again that what we read there in the Gospel of John, that John includes this, that the placard included Jesus' hometown. It said, Nazareth. Now, always when someone wanted to remind you that Jesus was a nobody, they would throw in the name Nazareth. Nothing good ever came from Nazareth. That's what his own disciples thought at first. Remember that Nathaniel's first impression when Philip told him that Jesus was the Messiah, his first impression was, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And we think the same things. You take the, the worst of our inner cities, the worst places of crime, the dirtiest places, and you would say, well, could any good thing come from there? Can any good thing come from the tenderloin? And Pilate just put up the superscription with that thought in mind. That's why he says, Nazareth, your royalty is scum because that's what you are, and this is the king that you deserve. 
Well, we look at another salient part of that superscription. Pilate wanted to be sure that nobody missed the message. Jerusalem was filled with thousands of people. Remember, it's Passover time. And at that time, the city would swell to ten times its population. In those days, the population of Jerusalem was about 25,000 people. But at Passover time, a quarter of a million people would pack in to Jerusalem. So there are Jews that came from all over the empire, and many of them would miss the message if there was only one language. We say, well, why is that? Well, it's because many of the Jews didn't speak Hebrew. After the dispersion uh, and the captivities, many of the Jews had lost the ability to speak in Hebrew, and so Pilate chose to write the superscription in three languages. One of those is specific to the Jews, to the Hebraic Jews, but the other two are more universal languages. They would have been picked up by others in the other parts of the empire, and so those could be read by the Hellenistic Jews. So he wrote the the, the inscription in Hebrew and Greek and in Latin, and that itself probably made it extremely unusual because I doubt very seriously that any criminals had their accusations written over them in three different languages. Now, it's interesting then that that Pilate thought of a way to show his contempt for the whole race of people, no matter where they came from, all at one time, by writing this over Jesus' head at the Passover time. And so when they said, His blood be upon us and our children, they couldn't have wished upon a star and had it come true any better. No crimes are listed on Jesus' cross because God had his own intentions for that superscription. They put it up there in mocking disbelief, but every word of it was true. And every time that they gazed at the cross, and when they wanted to look into his face, and they wanted to see the agony of this dying man of being beaten and nailed and naked, and what that, what effect that that had on him, every time that they looked up there, they had to see that accusation written above him. And as they looked away and they looked back and they looked into his eyes in the wide angle of their gaze, they kept seeing this always in their vision. They can't miss it. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Look back again. It is the king of the Jews. And that's a prophetic statement. It was true. Of course, it was true. And one day all Israel will realize that it's true. Some of them realized it sooner than others. Just 50 days after this, Peter preached on Pentecost, and there were 3,000 of the crucifiers that were convicted of their crime, and they got saved. Soon after that, there were 20,000 more that came to know Christ as the king. Many others realized it, but they never realized it happily. There was no salvation for the majority of these people. They trampled under their feet the blood of Christ. They bruised him. They, they bruised him. They killed him under, under this salvo of theirs. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And they got what they wanted because now they're in the flames of hell. They got exactly what they wanted. Now they know who he is. And that's the destiny of every person that doesn't believe in that superscription. God put it up there in universal language to tell all people that He is a king, and all people will one day bow before him. And you know that it's best to do that now. It's best to do it willingly rather than wait till later when you're forced to do it, and then the truth of it has no value at all for the salvation of your soul. It's best to do it now. A revelation tells us the truth of the superscription. It says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now most of the Jews in Jerusalem didn't believe what was on the placard. They rejected the Messiah. And that rejection is a very serious thing. Paul actually dealt with the rejection of the Jews and what God was going to do about that. And we would think that after all these terrible things that they did to him, that God would never have anything to do with the Jewish people again. But Paul addressed that. The Jews cast away Jesus, but did God cast them away? 
Romans 11 says, Paul says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. No, the Bible says God has not forsaken Israel. Israel will be saved. The Bible teaches that there is going to come a mass turning of Israel to Christ. And I surely hope that our Jewish neighbors that didn't like the sign that we had out there a few weeks ago, I surely hope that they're in that number that turns to Jesus Christ. One of these days there's going to be a great revival. Israel will be restored. Zechariah says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And so that superscription will be recalled to the minds of the Jews, and they'll look on the one that they crucified. They'll gaze up at that cross, and they will believe this is the king of the Jews. So yes, there will be a universal proclamation in all languages, to all people, all nations, all tribes, and they will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Isaiah said, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Jesus is the seed of the woman bruised. And the seed of the woman took the pain and the suffering of the cross, but it wasn't a fatal wound. That wasn't the end of him. He was bruised but not defeated. And he's going to rise, as we'll see in a little while, in a few messages later, he'll rise and he'll rise to crush the head of the serpent. There's enmity between him and all the seed of the serpent and all the brood of vipers that are descended from that serpent. All of them will be crushed under his feet. And I hope that none of you are part of that seed. Well, we step a little bit further into the narrative then, and the fourth thing that we look at here is the groups of gawkers. We started with two thieves, or we do start with two thieves. In verse number 38, they were hanging on crosses with him. They were nailed with him, and they looked over at him, and they saw the accusation that was written, and they said, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. And if you go down through the narrative, you find that there are others that reviled him. Others repeat the false accusations that have been made earlier. They said, if you can tear down the temple, and if you can build that again in three days, if you are the Son of God, if you can do all of that, then surely you can come down from the cross. And the chief priests and the elders, they were there, and they were there to see the end of their dirty deed. And so they derided him, and they said, if that superscription is true, if you're a king, come down from the cross. And you notice there in verse number 44, it says the thieves cast the same in his teeth. That means they repeated all the same accusations. And I want you to keep that in mind, because we're going to return to the thieves in just a minute. So we see a very diverse crowd at the cross. There are mockers there of several sorts. There there are criminals. There are people that were just passing by that weren't a part of the mob. There were people that just happened by. They walked down the road there next to Golgotha and they saw all the commotion that was taking place and they stopped and in their curiosity they took in the scene and they also wanted to mock Jesus. Maybe they weren't a part of the mob at the praetorium. Maybe they weren't a part of all the other things that had taken place, but probably had heard of Jesus. I mean, it it was hard to think that anybody wouldn't have heard the buzz about Jesus. You know how gossip travels. Gossip is always worse at the end than it is at the beginning. Some of these may have been the very ones that welcomed Jesus when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Some of them may have joined in in the praises of him and taken up with him for just a little while, but now we see they lend their voices to the mockers. 
And they rely on information that they've heard, not on what they've seen. And that's just like many Bible critics today. Many Bible critics act the same way. But these people, they're indifferent in one sense, but eventually all vote to crucify him. Have you noticed how, how, how many people love Jesus when it's convenient for them? They loved him when he came in at the first of the week. They praised him then when it's convenient for them. Oh, yes, they'll follow Jesus. Our, our politicians are like that. Whenever they announce their welfare plans and they talk about, oh, how good this is because we love people and they quote Jesus on peace, love, and harmony, and this is what we ought to do. But then just as quickly they throw Jesus under the bus when they read the superscription. When they realize, what does Jesus really want? Who is Jesus? When they start to implement their wicked social agendas and they find out that's nothing at all what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus wants. And so when Jesus conflicts with their political aspirations, with their platforms, and what they think is going to help them to get elected, then get rid of Jesus. We don't need him any longer. And you can you just tell me how that American party politics differs any at all from Pilate. Truth and righteousness do not rule party platforms. But I want to call your attention, though, to the Jewish leaders. They're the ones that are in charge of souls. Barack Obama and, and our political leaders are not in charge of our souls. But religious people are. The preachers are. And what do people do with Jesus? Well, just as these religious men did, when Jesus doesn't agree with them, they also invent a different God. Well, look at this horrible statement that they make in verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now here they make a suggestion that there is no connection between Jesus and God. Turn your Bible there to Isaiah chapter 42. You remember this uh, passage, I hope, from Christmas time. We use this as the uh, text for the message. Let's just read a little bit here what Isaiah 42 about says about who God delights in. Isaiah 42, verse number 1, it says there, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. In verse 5, Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Oh, who is the subject of that passage? Who is the one that delights God? Who, who is this one that's called in righteousness? Who is the one that God promised to give as a seed of the covenant? Who is the one? Well, that's Christ who is the seed of the woman. He's the one that God selected. And the Bible says that God delighted in him. I mean, he's perfect. What, what, what is there that's not to like about him? Multiple times his perfection was proved during the, the procedures of the cross, six times, six phases of trial, no accusations against him, no crime can be put on his placard. God delighted in him because he was perfect. And here, we may actually see the worst blasphemy that took place in all of these incidents at the cross. The spiritual guides of the people looked him in the face and without even bothering to address him directly, they said to each other, God does not delight in him. And so what is the conclusion? They worship a different God. They don't even know who this God is. They know nothing at all about the character of God. And folks, that is the same thing with spiritual leaders today. It's not an inaccurate assessment to say that people believe in a different God. Somebody totally different than the scriptures give us. This God that people believe in is as foreign as Molech or, or Baal or any of the other heathen gods that you want to mention. And I know it sounds harsh for me to say it, but you can't call people Christian who see a different Christ on the cross. The, the Mormons have a different Christ. And the Jehovah Witnesses have a different Christ. Even Muslims know about Christ, but they have a different one. And you might even want to hold on to your seats for this statement. Even Orthodox Christians 
see a different Christ. Is the Pope Catholic? Yes, but he's not Christian. I mean, you, you, you can't be a Christian if you tell people that they have to turn their souls over to the magisterium instead of the one that's hanging on the cross. And you can't be a Christian if you teach people that Mary intercedes instead of Christ. Ma Mary is not the seed of the woman. Mary is the woman. The seed of the woman is Christ. And Mary was never bruised for the salvation of any person's soul. Oh, yes, there are many religious gawkers. They look at the cross and they say a different, see a different Christ. And what spiritual leaders do is they blind people to the truth of this one who hung on that middle cross. Oh, Jesus is the one in whom the Father delights. And if you diminish God's choice by offering people another choice, then you blaspheme the work of Christ. You put him to an open shame. And so that's what this leadership did. They, they shamed Christ because they separated him from the Father that he claimed. But what they didn't know, to their chagrin, is that they proved who he was without even knowing it. Psalm 22, uh, this is written hundreds of years before. It, it said that it would happen, quoting what Jesus would be thinking, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they, that, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Now, do you see that? These, these teachers, these great teachers of the law, they said what God said they would say about the one that God said that they would say it. I mean, you get that? Did you hear that? They, they said what God would say about the one that God said that they would say it. They said exactly what he said they would say. Well, they, were, they were unwittingly proving God's plan to crush them. Along with the head of the serpent, they are giving away God's plan right here by their own accusations, what they say in Matthew chapter 27. And we get this, you know, Satan, Satan is so smart, we know that he is, but even he can't defy God's wisdom. Satan is the one who put all of these maneuvers into their hearts, and when he did that, he sealed his and their destruction. Genesis 3.15 is playing out right here before our eyes. I mean, you trace it back to the Garden of Eden, and there you'll see the Son of God lifting his foot to crush the head of the serpent. But I want you to see another unbelievable event here. Let's, let's go back and let's look at the thieves again. We see something here that's just totally mind-boggling. There's no explanation for what happens here except the matchless grace of God. Fifthly is the theological thief. Verse 44, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now, Matthew is showing us that the thieves also mocked Jesus. They are both of them, both thieves, were throwing their bruising barbs. But verse 44 is not the end of their story. One of them had an epiphany. And it was greater even than that of Peter's statement in Matthew 16, 16. You remember that statement where Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is even greater than Peter's statement. So there are two thieves that hung with Jesus, possibly. And I think most likely they were involved with the crimes of Barabbas. And so they hung with him there. They had no sympathy at all for his treatment. Uh, it's a testament to their, to their depravity. That here they are, hanging with Jesus, going through the very same things that he's going through. They know how awful that crucifixion is. Why do they add to his misery? Why, why, do, they, why do they deride him? Why are they mocking him? But they did. They wanted to bruise him too. But then something happened. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 23. And this is just, this is follow-up information uh, in which we see the power of the cross is demonstrated here right while the crucifixion is in progress. Matthew said both thieves were involved in tormenting Jesus. Both cast the same in his teeth. But then Luke writes in Luke 23 and verse 39, and one of the male factors which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, 
Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Well, here's mind-boggling, just a simply mind-boggling conversion. Two thieves, two men dying on crosses. What happened to one of them? Well, one of them, in only a few minutes, completely reversed his course. There's a sudden change in him. And I don't know if Jesus said something. I mean, I, I suspect that if there was a gospel message that was preached from the cross, that surely one of the evangelists would have told us that. I don't know if he began to think seriously about that superscription. He saw it over Jesus' head and began to think about that. I don't know if he observed the, the gracious way that Jesus took all of the hatred that was poured out on him. I, I, I don't know if he looked into Jesus' eyes and there he saw compassion and the agony of his suffering even for the men that were hanging with him. I don't know. I don't know. I, I just don't know. I see exactly what you see in this text. There are a couple of things that I can assume, or I promise you, I think it's most definitely true. I think it's definitely true that the Holy Spirit worked in the man's heart. The Holy Spirit showed him who Jesus really was. I can't give you more explanation than that. And I can tell you also that following the convention of the Scriptures, that according to Peter's confession, when he made that great statement in Matthew 16, 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, what did Jesus say? How did Jesus say he got that information? He said, The Father revealed that to you. You didn't know that by yourself. It was the Father that revealed that to you. Well, there's no explanation here except some kind of supernatural intervention, is there? So, something supernatural happens to this man's heart. There, there's no explanation why one thief suddenly makes an about face and he begins to preach to the other thief and the other thief sees all the same things that he saw and never reached the same conclusion. You can't explain that by saying, oh, that's free will at work right there. That's one guy who has good sense and the other one doesn't. Well, I suggest you realign your theological thinking if you think that because the thief is a much better theologian than you. And I'm telling you that he was a better theologian than the doctors of the law that railed on Jesus. They said, he's not the one in whom the Father delights. But the thief said, the criminal said, oh, yes, he is. God didn't open the eyes of the religious leaders. He, he opened the eyes of a criminal. And I think that shows us that God's not a respecter of persons. God doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care who you claim that you are. He saves only for Christ's sake. So that means the religious guy doesn't have a leg up on the one who spends his whole life in crime. We need to understand that statement, that, that going to church doesn't save people, and being a person that has family values, that's not going to save you. And being a born-again Christian or, or being in a born-again home where your parents are Christians, that's not going to save you. God saves for Christ's sake, and that's it. That's the end of the story. Now, I said that this thief is a theological thief. At the moment of his death, he knew more theology than the disciples had learned in three years. Let me, let me catch you up, catch this one first, then we'll cycle back and see what he says in the other verses. In verse 40, 42, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, isn't that something? What is the one theological truth that the disciples missed and missed and missed and always missed? What did they have most trouble with? The kingdom. They wanted to stop Christ's death because of the kingdom. They didn't understand why he was going to die. Because of the kingdom. After Christ died for three days, all of their hopes were shattered because of the kingdom. After he died, remember that Jesus talked with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they said to him, they said to Jesus, we hoped that he had been the one that would deliver Israel. Their problem was the kingdom. They didn't understand the kingdom. And the mocking crowd, they shouted for Jesus to come down from the cross. And you have to believe that the disciples hoped that he would too. 
They wanted him to come down. We sure hope that he does come down so he can prove that he's the king. Oh, you know they wanted him to come down. They wanted him to come down and squash the head of those serpents right then. Destroy them all. But what did the thief do? He knew that Jesus wasn't going to come down. Jesus was going to die. And yet at the same time, he believed that he had the power to come down. Well, he stopped his mocking cry, come down and save us. And he changed it to stay there, die, and save me and take me into your kingdom. Oh, he knew where Jesus was headed. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that marvelous theology? I mean, there's no one that could have opened his eyes to that truth but God. I mean, was his good sense better than 12 apostles and three years of Jesus' personal seminary? No criminal is going to look at Jesus hanging beside him, bleeding and battered and bruised, and say, you know something, I just figured the whole thing out. I mean, I, I see it now. He really is a king. Of course he is. The superscription said he's a king. I mean, look at him. He's got to be a king. Folks, nobody is ever going to convince me that salvation is something that we figure out without a supernatural, effectual call of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. It is absolutely necessary for the Holy Spirit to speak to the elect of God and bring them to Him. All the scriptures are simply dripping with this doctrine. And the thief on the cross believed it. Look, what else he believed? In this statement, remember me, there's also a belief in the resurrection. The disciples didn't have that hope yet. Again, they were despondent for three days, but not the thief. He died assured and happy, knowing that Jesus would die and live again because that's the only way he's going to get into paradise. So it's just an outstanding profession of faith. This is better than Peter's. Oh, this man's cross was a shortcut to a theology degree. There's, there's no argument here about whether you can find five points. They're all at work on the cross. Now look, look, look what he said to the other thief in verse 40. Don't you fear God? Did he associate Jesus with God? Doesn't the word of God say that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? Why aren't more people saved? You know, Romans explains that. Why aren't more people saved? There is no fear of God before their eyes. This man feared God, or we could say just as correctly, he feared Christ because Jesus was God. Now, he's a better theologian than Mormons, better theologian than J.W.'s. Fearing God is the first step in believing the gospel. I mean, just as, as Jorge there says, keep preaching on hell. People need to know what they're being saved from. And then look what else he knows. Dost not thou fear God, knowing that we are in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. Now, wait just a minute here. You mean he understands the depravity of man? Did he understand that? Did he understand all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Did he understand that the wages of sin is death? Did he understand total inability? Because there was nothing at all that he could do from that cross? Can't we see a picture of our total helplessness in coming to God for salvation? Did he understand the perfection of Christ? This man, he said, has done nothing amiss. Did he believe that we're justified by the perfect man? Did he believe that the innocent must die for the guilty? Did he look at the other thief and say, Well, I'm better than you. I figured it out. I know more than you. I have more sense than you. No, he became an evangelist on the cross. Fear God because we are sinners that are justly condemned. Trust the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then what's, what's the result of these marvelous conversations? Verse 43, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The hymn writer wrote this great verse. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there my, may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, what? Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. 
and with his stripes we are healed. Bruised, he said, he was bruised. The seed of the woman was bruised. All the stripes were laid on him so that we could be healed of our sins. In verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Isn't it amazing how the Word of God just fits so perfectly together? Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, where God says, you're going to bruise him, Satan. You'll bruise him. You'll not defeat him. You'll bruise him. And we come to Isaiah and the recount of what would happen at the cross. And there God says, he's going to be bruised. He will be bruised. He'll bear their iniquities, but my righteous servant will justify many. So he, he shall see his seed. That's the message of the cross. It's predicted in Genesis 3.15, the earth was only days old. And here we see the prophecy played out for everyone to see. Now, one last observation. You, you've been patient with me today, but I just had to, what's more important than this? I mean, I have to ask you that. Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not next year. Not after purgatory. Today. And that's for everyone here. Everyone who believes in Christ, salvation can come to you today. If you trust Jesus Christ, you, you are as safe for heaven as that thief was right there hanging next to Jesus Christ when he promised him that that very day he would take him into heaven. Oh, eternal life begins at the very moment that you believe. And this is why the scripture says, today, 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 today is the day of salvation. Thank God for the cross of Jesus Christ. He was bruised, not defeated, and we have salvation in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word and the story of the death of Jesus Christ. We're not through. There, there's more to discuss. Lord, uh, every, every time is painful for us to have to go back through it again. But we see here just the marvelous work that you did for us at the cross. The only way by which we could be saved is for you to go through every bit of this pain and suffering that we see here in the scriptures. Lord, I pray you impress that upon someone's heart today. You've done so much for us. What are we going to do now for you? Are we going to believe? Are we going to trust you? Are we going to really accept this truth of what you did for us at Calvary? I pray that your people have done that and will continue to do it. And know that you'll bring someone to saving knowledge of you today. Bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.